You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey you, I am a few days late with this week's episode, but I know you understand because of the world. (laughs) Episode 299 is here. It's kind of bizarre that we're going to be celebrating 300 episodes in the midst of a global pandemic, but that is just what it has to be. And before we get to anything else, I really want to just pause and ask, how are you. Really, truly, how are you? If you want to comment on Facebook or Instagram or shoot me a note at donsarah.com, reaching out when things feel confusing and intense is a brave thing to do and an important thing to do. And while I can't fix anything and I can't necessarily reply to everyone, I am always happy to hear from you, to hold space for you. And I know that a lot of us are feeling triggered and checked out, anxious and scared and frustrated, overwhelmed, panicked, numb. All of it is okay. I mean, surviving right now is the most important thing. And for a lot of us, surviving might feel really difficult scary, especially if we've lost our jobs, if we're not sure of our housing situation, if we or loved ones are still having to go into work or know someone and love someone who's a healthcare worker. Some of us might be isolating and live alone, which might feel really lonely. And others might be isolating in homes that are unsafe, homes that are violent or just really fucking uncomfortable because of the dynamics and it's not ideal. I have been doing a lot of Zoom calls, both with friends, family, colleagues, and also with the community. Hopefully you saw my email that went around last week and this week with a whole bunch of calls that I'm holding for free just so that we can feel less alone and connect. I've been having phone calls with friends that I haven't talked to in forever. There have been loads of texting and checking in and co-working online. And that piece has actually felt really good and important. Like I've been talking to people that I've missed. And because Alex and I are in the throes of summiting and a whole bunch of client work, we've been trying to find time to play a few times a day. We're essentially fully quarantined because we actually live in a high rise. So we can't walk out our door without touching lots of things that other people have touched or being in an elevator that is almost always full. So instead of leaving our place, we've been doing things like going out on our balcony 
to watch the birds or to notice the cherry blossoms that are coming out on the trees nearby, or even pretending we're in a different city and talking about all the things that we would see if we were in Paris or free in Patagonia. And that little bit of fresh air and also imagination has felt really good. I also just want to say for those of you that are still having to go to work, I am thinking about you and I hope you're in a situation that's as low risk as possible. And for those of us who do have the privilege of staying in, of working from home, I hope each and every one of us are taking that responsibility very, very seriously and only going out if it's absolutely necessary. It might be inconvenient, it might be scary or frustrating, but this is how we care for each other. I've also seen in a lot of my groups people who are talking about how lonely they feel and how starved for touch they are. And something that is worth noting, because I think it's something we really discount and don't think about a lot, is self-touch. Self-touch is so, so important, especially at times like these. We can really soothe our nervous systems make our bodies feel appreciated through self-touch. And particularly when we bring intention and attention to the touch, we touch ourselves a thousand times a day, but it's just functional. You know, we're just moving hair out of our face or scrubbing ourselves in the shower or, you know, rubbing lotion into our skin or knocking something off of our hand. But to really be with ourselves to make a ritual out of it, to self-massage those knots in our shoulders and neck, to hug ourselves, even to spank ourselves, to slap ourselves, to flog ourselves. You know, when we touch ourselves with that intention and really arrive in the sensations, it can be nourishing and validating. And so few of us do that for ourselves. So I hope that if you have the time and the ability that that might be something you experiment with in the coming week. And pleasure is more important than ever right now. Yes, surviving is our top priority, but my hope is that we can experience a little bit of thriving here and there. Moments of joy, moments of delight, and certainly moments of pleasure. Eat foods that bring you pleasure. Listen to music that brings you pleasure. Talk to people who make you laugh and feel less alone. Dance or sway with fun songs and musicals. We did that today and (laughs) laughed a whole bunch. Anything that helps you to feel more present and alive is going to help us also manage the fear and the uncertainty. And as weird as it is, (laughs) since we're all home or many of us are and isolating registration for explore more summit is open and i expect this year is going to be pretty extraordinary and important it's it's just like really weird that i started planning this year's summit last summer like i sat down in june and july and kind of imagined what kinds of conversations that i wanted us to have And I started recording interviews with people in August and then recorded all the way through February. And I never could have anticipated that we would find ourselves inside of a global pandemic. But holy shit, are these conversations timely and important? 
They really are. I mean, we are talking about resilience, community accountability and collective care, pleasure, especially when we're in traumatized bodies, trauma and soothing our nervous systems, relational responsibility and boundaries, body trust and eating from a place of pleasure, joyful movement, embodiment in times of crises. We're talking about grief and rage and so much more that really speaks to where we find ourselves right now and needing to support each other and needing to take action in ways that might be uncomfortable for us, but serve so many others and finding ways to be creative and playful and connecting around difficult things. So if you haven't attended Explore More Summit before, this is our sixth one and it happens over 10 days. We're doing it April 20th to the 29th this year. It's free to attend live. So you can tune in for all 28 talks uh, without paying anything. And when you register to get your free ticket at exploremoresummit.com, you will not only get to watch around three talks per day for those 10 days, but you also get these amazing free workbooks that we fill with journal prompts, reflective questions, invitations into new stories that help you really take everything you see in the talks and bring it into your life and in your body and your bones. And we have a private Facebook group where we talk about all sorts of things and it really is a beautiful, precious experience. So I hope that you're going to join us. You can see the full lineup at exploremoresummit.com plus the schedule. You're going to see names like Kai Ching Tom, Pleasure Mechanics, Nora Samaran, Captain uh, Jesse, who's one of the founders of Somatic Sex Education, Andrea Glick, who you might know as Somatic Witch on Instagram. They talk about impact play and kink as a pathway to embodiment and healing attachment wounds. Dana and Hillary from Be Nourished are there. Rachel Cole is talking about living a well-fed life and so many more people. Dr. Jennifer Mullen from Decolonizing Therapy. Lama Rod Owens, who's a Buddhist, talking about rage and love and patriarchy and toxic masculinity. So in other words, whether you see one talk or all 28 talks, you don't want to miss it. It's online, it's free, and we're going big places. So you can get your free ticket at exploremoresummit.com and hopefully I will see you there. So let's talk about this week's episode. Leonor Chia is back. Leonor and I always have such an incredible time going really deep in our conversations. It's something we literally just do for fun when we have our Zoom dates uh, every couple weeks or couple months, depending on what's going on in our lives. Uh, And this episode is basically you getting to eavesdrop on some of the things that we have been thinking about and feeling into and asking ourselves about lately. And then for you patrons, Leonor and I actually talked for about 45 minutes before starting the podcast episode. And like 20 to 25 minutes of that was gold. It was so good. So I'm releasing that as the Patreon bonus this week for those of you who support it $3 a month and above. We didn't intend for it to be heard, but as we were getting ready to record for the podcast, Leonor was like, that was really good. Maybe that should be part of the podcast. And I said, I was recording. And so thank goodness 
You can head to patreon.com slash SGR podcast to Eve eavesdrop on us even more and hear us like really, really geeking out about so many things that you're going to hear. So in the episode, um, Leonor talks all about her work with highly sensitive people around sex, what a highly sensitive person is, the ways that HSPs, as they're called, often have to perform lots of emotional labor and have to perform being non-sensitive and the ways that that really impacts them and creates resentment in relationships and also the impact that that has on libido. We talk about what partners of highly sensitive people can do to better support the HSPs in their life, which is important because all of us know HSPs, even if we don't know we know them. We talk about the importance of having multiple sources of support so that we can better show up in our relationships with care and presence and what that looks like. And then we dive into the mess that is modern mental health. Leonor is getting her um, degree right now. She's in grad school to become a therapist and is having some really interesting experiences, which you'll hear more on the Patreon bonus. But we talk about the violence that modern mental health can really enact on us by trying to pathologize really normal experiences and trying to conform us to really deeply normative and violent systems. And also we talk about why Leonor thinks that so much of modern mental health models are inherently anti-erotic. And when we're going to professionals like therapists for support around our mental health, if the models they're using are inherently anti-erotic, then that's going to serve to further separate us from our creativity, our joy, our aliveness, our feelings. And so we have lots of ideas around what we can do around that, um, how we can be more discerning. There's a lot, but I am very much looking forward to you hearing it. So let me tell you a little bit about Leonor, and then we are going to jump into the episode. Leonor is a feminist sexuality educator who helps people create more presence, play, pleasure, and power in the bedroom and beyond. I love all of that alliterating. As a trained practitioner of internal family systems therapy, she assists people in recovering the parts of their sexual selves that have been exiled and repressed. Her workshops and teaching bring an ecological focus to sexual empowerment, helping people to reconnect to erotic vitality and step into sexual wildness. She is the founder of the Nordic Woman Retreat, which combines wilderness skills and expressive arts in the Swedish backcountry. Here is my chat with Leonor Chia. Welcome back to Sex Gets Real, Leonor. Um, chatting with you is one of my greatest pleasures in life. Oh my God, I'm so honored, really. <laughs> yes! <laughs> wow, I'm going to put that on my resume. Uh, please do. <laughs> I just feel so nourished and challenged whenever we get together and geek out about all of the things that you and I both love thinking about and being inside of. So I'm excited that you're here this week and that we get to do a little bit more exploring together. Oh, me too. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. So there's lots of places that we want to go today, but where I would love to start is I have not in the, I don't know, five years of this show really done much of talking about 
highly sensitive people now. I think I've certainly talked about it in a very roundabout way. You know, a lot of the people that write in and a lot of the people that I work with certainly are highly sensitive people, but you just recently taught a class around sex and highly sensitive people. And I would love to hear more about that. Mm, Yeah. Oh, awesome. So this work really comes out of, uh, I mean, I think we're always like mining our work out of our own experiences and pain, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely someone who like resisted looking into the term high sensitive, highly sensitive person for a long time because I think like a lot of highly sensitive people, I was in denial and like very much resisted it because I was like, oh, I just like, it, it sounds like kind of a weak term or like, I don't know, you know, I, I have to, um, I, I resisted looking at my own sensitivity because I didn't want to, um, I think face this like level of vulnerability that had always been there in my life, but it's been really transformative to do mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Um, so you want me to just dive in? Well, I would love it if you would, maybe for people who don't know what a highly sensitive person is, how would you define mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So high sensitivity is, um, it's a sensory processing sensitivity that affects about 20% of the population. It's been a very well researched and published about um, primarily from two researchers, Elaine and Arthur Aaron, psychologists, um, who have kind of spawned this whole body of work around it. So they define it as an increased sensitivity of the central nervous system and a deeper cognitive processing of physical, social, and emotional stimuli. So I think when we start talking about high sensitivity, there's a tendency to equate it with what we might refer to as empaths and to really talk about it in the emotional dimension, um, which is definitely part of it. Um, However, uh, a lot of it actually is very is experienced very physically. So we're talking about people who have an inherently greater sensitivity to all kinds of stimulation, Mm -hmm. like bright lights, you know, fluorescent lights, like make you want to die. Loud sounds really affect you. Textures of clothes, like really bother you. Being around crowds is especially draining. You know, it's things Mm -hmm. like that. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it can kind of make you feel crazy because really being in this world, we're living in a world that is not calibrated to our nervous systems. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, it kind of sets us up to have a hard time, you know, even attending to those needs. I mean, on a very physical level, you know, yeah. like, oh, I'm trying to pay attention to you and have this conversation, but like I can hear the whine of the TV that no one else can hear and the lights are just, you know, and and then I'm feeling like drained and dissociated and I don't even know why. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think too, how not only is the world designed in a way that, especially our current kind of iteration of modern world and life Mm -hmm. is very, very like sensory overwhelming Mm-hmm. and how so many of us are kind of becoming numbed to that. But it mm-hmm. also makes me think about how, like one of the things that I have um, really high sensitivity to is textures and foods mm-hmm. and how uh, so many people in my life have seen that as being like really silly or really dramatic. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this like downplaying, it's not that bad. Oh, it's just in your head. Or even like, I remember as a kid, um, hearing some friends, parents saying about my friends, you know, like, oh, they just want attention. 
Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's this experience of being kind of gaslit by our environments all the time. Yeah. <laughs> because we attend and to and notice things that other people don't. Um, and also because then our needs are perceived as problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also curious, you know, so many of the things you named, I think, are also um, very similar or adjacent for people who are on the autism spectrum or who have experienced trauma uh, and have PTSD or even people who live with like panic and anxiety. So there's lots of similarities in a lot of these um, things that you're describing around being sensitive to textures and noises and crowds. And I'm wondering do those need to be teased out? Or when you think about like highly sensitive people and also people maybe who have PTSD or who have anxiety and panic, does it really just boil down to your experience is true? So let's honor that regardless of what the label is and find ways to like thrive with this being true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, totally. Well, I mean, I think there's always co-factors going on. A lot of highly sensitive people have, you know, their own trauma histories, definitely, um, or are autistic, um, or any of the other things that you mentioned. So I think it's useful to think about it as a set of over, overlapping identities and experiences that can also be experienced discreetly. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think you and I are probably on the same page of it really boils down to, you know, not, it's not about categorizing people into some essential label, but really just listening to the truth of their lived experience and, and helping people to, as you say, to thrive in worlds that are not set up to support them. So when it comes to sex and HSPs, what are some of the things that you're kind of teasing out? What are some of the things you want people to know? What are you hoping to teach? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So looking at the research that exists on high sensitivity, um, what I found was really interesting is that highly sensitive people are more likely to um, experience sex as mysterious and powerful and meaningful. Um, they're more likely to like inherently um, to experience its depths mm. and also more likely to um, to be distracted, to get overstimulated and overwhelmed, um, to really need their environment, to, to need environmental setup, you know, to feel an erotic spark yeah. and also to need more transition time and recovery time after. Mm -hmm. So that I found very interesting. And the other thing that is fascinating about the research is that there's high sensitivity and then there's high sensation seeking Ooh. and you can have them together and you can also have them separately. So um, high sensation seeking uh, correlates with a desire for novelty, exploration and adventure, um, a tendency to get restless in routine, a draw to intense physical experiences and like a seeking of physical thrills. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's, high sensitivity is kind of known for having more um, of a, a risk consciousness, yeah. you know, doing more risk assessments and high sensation seekers are exactly what it sounds like people who are really drawn to have in intense experiences. So you can have them together and you can also have them separately. I think it's such an interesting thing to like be highly sensitive 
and to be kind of looking for risk because you know how that impacts you, but then at the same time to be high sensation seeking and to feel kind of that contradiction inside yourself. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Plus it's like my entire sexual story. <laughs> <laughs> so this explains sex. This explains so much. <laughs> it explains so much. I mean, also I think it's like, you know, we're overstimulated so often that there's a desire to experience like that kind of overstimulation on your own terms. Yeah. And I just think about, yeah, certainly what, you know, what my own sexual journey, what BDSM has involved is kind of looking for consensual and supportive and empowering experiences of sensation. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting about that too is, you know, especially right now because of how we're living our lives with technology and kind of this like immediacy culture, there is so much resistance in us to like really slowing down and arriving. We're terrified of being bored mm-hmm. or being offline. And in a lot of ways that mimics this like high sensation seeking, right? Like this mm-hmm. need for novelty and mm-hmm. um, wanting things to be really fast moving, but that can also be a symptom of like numbing, escaping and trying to not feel. hmm So I think that's a really interesting space too. Totally. I mean, I think all of us on the planet right now are living in times where our nervous systems are being taxed, you know, perhaps more than ever before. And in a lot of ways, I think that highly sensitive people are kind of like canaries in the coal mine in that we're a population of higher attunement, higher responsiveness, and therefore, um, being more affected by issues that are actually global. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It also makes me think too, like I'm so glad that you're offering workshops around this and helping to normalize for people that maybe they experience sex as something that's like very emotional or has a lot of depth or that they're really sensitive to the environment and they need a lot of like aftercare because I think, Um, I personally have experienced, and I'm sure you have too, in your coaching practice of working with people that there's so much pain and shame that happens when people are trying to um, perform and kind of keep up with like hookup culture, but then finding that it's really difficult for them. Um, They keep getting their feelings hurt or they like just feel like something isn't working, but they're trying to pretend like they're super chill and how there's this like attempt to appear like everybody else who's kind of super sexual and hooking up with people versus the actual lived experience of like, how does this feel in my body? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not what's best for me. And some of the shame that comes with that. Totally. Totally. I mean, what I loved about developing this material is that it's really about um, healing your relationship with your own nervous system and how you inhabit your, 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 your whole body, your nervous system, your emotional sphere, your relational sphere, and really just a process of being who you are, you know, not who you think you should be or who we were trained and indoctrinated into being. And so what I really actually found through this course was, even though we started off by talking about high sensitivity in terms of the physical aspects, like getting overstimulated by the lights and so on, a huge piece of the work was the emotional, yeah. the psychological and the emotional of 
how do we understand our needs? And that brought us into really examining how often we were overriding our discomfort. Mm. Just to move through the world at all, to go grocery shopping, you know, to be in grad school, to um, have conversations with family members, just the chronic, chronic overriding of discomfort that we had become um, habituated to. Yeah. And that everything that came out of that, the suppression of our needs, this um, prioritizing of other people's comfort and experience, uh, this kind of constant stance of caretaking and volunteering excessive emotional labor, and just the incredible relational patterns that then come out of that. And it, you know, it, it's, there's just so much there. There's so much there because I think one of the things that's really challenging about that, especially when you aren't able to name it and really have it validated is an experience of moving through so many of your relationships with this like buzz of resentment Mm -hmm. and not knowing why, Mm -hmm. like these people are good people and I love them and we have fun and yet like I'm just constantly irritated or I can't Mm -hmm. stop being short with them or I'm getting really passive aggressive or I'm just annoyed all the time. Mm -hmm. And how that, that often is a symptom of this like chronic overriding of -hmm. our needs and chronic tolerating of things that aren't really serving us, but we're trying to be really good partners or we're people pleasing or, you know, all the other things that come with so many of our identities. Totally. And especially because part of, um, of high sensitivity is having innately more empathy and more information processing, a greater depth of information processing. So that means, you know, just you really catch the micro expressions in people's faces you, when they're upset. You know, you can really tell when someone is not happy. And it really impacts you. Like the interpersonal stuff is so loud in this space and it can really create this whole realm of relational tolerations then where you know we might be going through a lot of our relationships not really feeling heard when you know we're talking to people who mostly monologue at us and who don't ask us questions (laughs) we want to have a back and forth you know we want to have a really um balanced relational experience but just these these things that seem so minor like just being told how we should feel or give it, being um, receiving advice that we didn't ask for. Yeah. Or um, just think, you know, just the experience of being the more empathetic one in the relationship where we end up feeling kind of taken advantage of, it really then just creates all this inner talk like, oh, well, they didn't mean to hurt my feelings or I shouldn't be feeling this way. And a huge part of this work is just becoming aware of how much is going on inside and how draining it is. Yeah. And it makes so much sense too. You know, I mean, so many people who write into the show and who I work with are experiencing a lot of distress around like libido and desire. Mm -hmm. And it makes so much sense that of course, if we're doing all of this emotional labor, of course, if we're feeling like our needs aren't getting met, our feelings are being dismissed, we're being talked 
at instead of listened to and witnessed. Mm-hmm. Of course, our libido is going to be in the toilet. Of course, mm-hmm. desire is going to feel hard to come by because we can never really just arrive and like expand into ourselves. Mm-hmm. And because we don't feel welcome as to who we really are. I mean, yeah. our core experience is my needs make me too much. And I feel unseen and misunderstood, the core loneliness, you know, being told you're so sensitive, this high level of self-monitoring of like, you know, who do I need to be right now? And then all the ways we contort ourselves into that. And the amount of psychic energy that is lost through this, I think really explains so much of the erotic suffering that we're living in, mm-hmm. you know, but of course, mainstream medical models just want to turn it into, you know, a physical issue. Yep. Right. Yep. I'm wondering, uh, what about people who are partnered with highly sensitive folks? Mm -hmm. Like if you are partnered with somebody who experiences high sensitivity, maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking that really describes this person in my life, like they really hate certain sweaters and they really can't stand crowds and lights. And they seem to be like very in touch with emotions or they notice the tiniest things cross my face. How do you think people who are in relationship with HSPs can do better? Oh, what a great question. Love it. I mean, I think a huge part of it is just offering a space that's truly accepting and affirming for our needs, you know, where, we can um, hang out and be silent together. We don't have to feel this, fill the space or I can express my emotions around you and know that you're not going to, you're not going to get super dysregulated. Mm-hmm. And on, I mean, on a really relational level, I can say that uh, this is true. I think for all people, but it's really exacerbated in highly sensitive people is we can really hold back from giving feedback about what's not working because the, other person's distress overwhelms us so much that then we can't even feel what's happening for us. Yeah. And so it creates huge patterns of avoidance. And so, I mean, for partners of highly sensitive people to just work on being calm and centered in themselves, you know, and, and so that we can, um, each person can really, find their center of relating to their own needs in relationship, I think is so healing. That feels really like kind and generous is just kind of what's coming to mind, you know, to, I want that for all of us Mm -hmm. to be in relationship with people where if we're crying, if we're upset, if things hurt really bad, if we're so frustrated that we've lost words and we're in tears that the people around us can really truly like be in that with us and not try to rush to fix or to then get triggered into their own emotional response. So then it come, it becomes about caretaking for this other person. You know I mean? Like I want for all of us to be able to like fall apart and be messy and know the people around us can hold us and love us and aren't going to throw us away or freak out about it. That to me would be so healing. I'm so right there with you. It's my prayer too. And um, it's a huge part of the work that I do with people. And yeah, it just makes me, hearing you say that just makes me really reflect on gratitude for my own relationships and the support that's there that 
you know, it wasn't there a couple of years ago. It took work, but yeah. it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Before we started, you were talking about how so much more of your work is really becoming like deeply relational. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're talking about really kind of lays some of that foundation, you know, that so much of the work that, that we are doing with others is giving them that space mm-hmm. to be able to not know and feel awkward and be messy and fall apart and for them to still be seen as like worthy and lovable. Mm-hmm. When you think about doing relational work and the things that that's healing, what does that look like for you? Mm. So such a great question. I mean, I, my background really came out of experiential sexuality education, um, super powerful, um, but really about connecting people to information and models and possibilities and experiences for their sexual well-being that they hadn't had. And so I saw how liberating it was to just get access to that. And that's still, of course, a huge part of my work. But over time, it has become become more relational as I've shifted to working with people more long-term. And so what it can look like is, you know, just creating a space where a client can tell me that something I said didn't land well with them, you know, hurt their feelings or made them feel judged. And to actually have the experience of telling, and sometimes, I mean, they're telling me about something that happened like months ago, yeah. you know, and just to have the experience of feeling heard and listened and that I, I that how much I appreciate it when they bring that up, you know, and that I can contain my own um, feelings of like, oh no, I fucked up, <laughs> you know, yeah. but just to, to really be met non-defensively in that. Um, it's I mean, it's been hugely powerful in my own therapy and, and it's something that I really bring into the space too of, you know, just really feeling that for me, that unconditional positive regard mm-hmm. and also that I'm going to take care of myself in, in our relationship so that you don't have to attend to me. I'm here for you. Yeah. And you have supports in place that can help you to process the tough stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's something else that's important, right? Is like, it can't just be about the two of us constantly having that unconditional space holding and regard. Mm -hmm. It needs to be that web of care that we all have. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, so important to say, because I can't do that without I mean, I wanted to be really transparent about what it's like to work relationally. I can't do it without my own therapy, um, without my own consultation groups where I can go and bring the parts of me that are like, I feel like I totally fucked up, you know, or I feel like, um, you know, like the worst practitioner ever, (laughs) (laughs) you know, those parts of me and, and have support for those parts. Um, it's also you know, and, and it does take energy. So that's why I have to, I, I really prioritize like not burning out in this work too, yeah. you know, cause it has to come from this authentic place. And I also just want to say really clearly that, um, this kind of practitioner and client relationship where I'm offering this relational space for them, I really clearly differentiate from other relationships in my life, like yep. with my friends and my partners, where it is absolutely a reciprocal back and take, I mean, give and take, you know? Yeah. 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 And all the different kinds of relationships we have where we're navigating that, you know, like even in the workplace between a boss and an employee or between colleagues who are working on different projects. I mean, sometimes 
we need to be the space holders. And sometimes we need to be the person who finds someone who can hold that space. And maybe that's not our primary partner or our best friend because of whatever's going on. I really appreciate you know, how important it is that we have multiple places where we can be vulnerable and messy and unsure about all of the aspects of our life. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me think too, like, I think so many people who listen to this show want to do better. Mm. You know, I think like so many of the people who are drawn to this show, at least in its current iteration, are people who want a more just world. They want to do relationships differently. They want to be, um, more really reflective about like the impacts that they have on the people in their lives, because all of those things lead to better sex and more pleasure and feeling more ourselves. But so much of what you're talking about around, like in order for us to really be in the kinds of relationships where we can appreciate other people's vulnerability, it requires us to be doing our own worthiness work. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like I have to fundamentally know I am okay, even if Alex comes to me and says something that's really hard to hear. Mm -hmm. And for me to be able to say, I'm so glad that you felt you could bring that to me. Like, it's not that it doesn't hurt and it's not that it doesn't bring up my stuff, but it's that I've done enough work and I have enough support that people can help me in that and I don't crumble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You're saying it so well. I mean, I really see it deeply as self-love work, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And boundary work too. You know, Mm -hmm. I think being able to say, I don't have the capacity for this right now. Mm -hmm. How can I help you find support around this? Or this isn't mine to own. Mm -hmm. You know, I think so often that like, yes, right. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. This is like, and this is like so much of the high sensitive stuff too is, just getting people to see how much they take responsibility for things that really are not theirs. Yeah. You know, and then are just contorted into all this guilt and shame and codependence. And um, it really, and what I'm learning is it takes such a strong foundation of self-love to actually know who you are so that you can discern what is not yours. Mm. When people come at you with their projections and their triggers, I mean, it, it's so overwhelming. And of course, in our empathy and our care and our relatedness, we want to be there and respond appropriately. Um, but what I'm learning is the thing that gives us the clarity. I, and I say this as someone who has really gotten overwhelmed. And then my strategy was just to run in the other, other direction, <laughs> you know, and slam doors and become avoidant because I couldn't handle the overwhelm. Yeah. And it's such a common thing, especially for highly sensitive people. And what I've learned is that the clarity to know, like, this is not mine. And because I know it's not mine, I'm not going to collapse into a place of wounded I suckness. You know, I'm actually can be here and like, just be with like, seems like you're, really going through something right now would you like to tell me more about it Mm. what really creates that is self-love yeah and I and I think one of the things that's like so important to name is when we are in these points of all of our relationships you know when maybe our partner's having a meltdown and they're really angry about something and when we know like this isn't about me 
This isn't Mm -hmm. mine to take on. Even though we might be tempted to, we've all got Mm -hmm. those little inner critics that are like, oh God, it's me. I did something wrong. That it still might hurt. It still might be uncomfortable. It still might bring up all those things. But we also have the practice of knowing Mm -hmm oh, I've been through this before and it's been okay. I know how to soothe or ask for some space. And also we've got other stories in our heads that when that little voice comes up and goes, oh my God, this is me. I should apologize. I totally did something wrong. And there's another voice that's like, wait a minute. I don't think this is about me. Mm-hmm. And you can pause, mm-hmm. you know, like, and those I think are the things that like we're working towards. It's not just this like, very easy veneer where things slide off it might still be fraught because we're human beings but we have more options exactly you're saying it so well and it's so important to say that because i think we really need to get over the kind of salvation fantasy that like one day it won't hurt anymore (laughs) you know right and that like i'm still fucked up because i still struggle with these things i mean this is this is just core human relational stuff yeah um but what I'm seeing is, I mean, especially with sexuality work is how important it is to support the psyche, to go from a place of just baseline, I fucked up and things are my fault. I take everything personally. You know, I'm so easily overwhelmed by other people's needs. I can't even feel my own. I mean, this is like most people. Yeah. You know, we need to actually support, get support for, to experience who we can be beyond that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and then with that, like experiencing how it transforms sexuality too. I mean, it's just amazing, an amazing process. Yeah. Because I think like so many of the ways that we've been indoctrinated into smallness and domesticity, which is something you talk about a lot, are these stories that make us want to collapse on ourselves, right? They keep us shrunk. They keep us small. They keep us contained. They keep us focused in on all the things that are wrong with us. And when we begin practicing new stories and new skills, when we begin finding new language and we kind of feel our shoulders kind of like right drop back and down and our chest opens, it's this process of taking up a little more space. And then we begin to find a little bit more voice and a little more power. And now we're kind of opening to the erotic Mm -hmm. and to having more options and to feeling into this power that we know we have, even if it's hard or messy or scary, like fundamentally, I know I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I can choose how I want to be in this moment. And it might be Mm -hmm. imperfect, which is okay. But like, I realize there's more choices than just that shrinking, collapsing, closing down and nothing can move through me. I can't connect Mm -hmm. with other in that way. Mm -hmm. A huge part of this work is just helping people come out of, you know, nearly lifelong states of being in flight, fight, freeze, and fawn. Yep. Because Eros can't move through that. There isn't space for Eros in that, you know. Yeah. Really, not in a, um, not in a, not in the ways, not to the extent that it's possible, you know. And we're capable of so much more than we think we are in that collapsed state. So this process of like finding our inner authority, transforming shame into courage, 
it opens the wellspring to actually be like a good container for Eros to visit. Uh, that just makes me feel so excited. Mm. <laughs> you know, like when I think about the potential that we all have and what would become possible in the ways that we move through the world and what we create and how we relate and how we treat the planet, right? If more of us really were able to connect deeply with like empathy, arrows, each other, and to do it from a place of power and openness, mm-hmm. you know, versus like taking, extracting, hoarding, mm-hmm. because those also are things around shrinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to armor myself by hoarding resources or money or proving I'm better than other people. You know, all of those things also come from this like shrinking, armored, closed down place. Mm-hmm, exactly. And that's why I really chose to call my business Rewild Your Heart, because in this practice of rewilding, we're coming out of the, the taking, the extracting, the dominating you know, dominating in the, in the bad way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the super sexy consensual way. way. Yeah. <laughs> Mindsets that have created the entire global system that we live in. And so, I mean, I do sometimes feel this angst of like doing sexuality work and what kind of feels like the apocalypse at times and being like, you know, what, how is my work contributing? But to the extent that it is about deeply shifting our ways of relating to ourselves, each other in the world. I mean, we need to change how we're doing things. Yeah. On a very practical level. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it really has to start with our most intimate relationships and with ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, if I am not actively reflecting on the ways that I live my life, on what brings me more joy and aliveness, can I trust my hungers Mm -hmm. to be open to my sensations? it's going to be really difficult for me to do that with other people. And then it's going to be nearly impossible for me to do that with even larger systems. And we're going to operate from a place of distrust and Mm -hmm. um, pain and grasping. And so it really does have to start with like our relationship with our bodies, these fleshy vessels, our relationships with the people closest to our lives. And that's how we begin to do this transformation that we so desperately need like globally. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this, we're in a time of such, I think, distrust and disenchantment with so many institutions and orthodoxies. Yeah. And, um, and, and then in this search for the mindsets that can actually, you know, bring us back to life. I think it's exactly what you're naming. One of the other things that I'm kind of thinking about too, as because I mean, so much of what we're talking about is about finding ways to gently in, interrogate ourselves, mm-hmm. to ask, do we want to be different? Are we capable of more? Is this serving me? And for many of us, the ways that we do some of that interrogating is with mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked on multiple occasions, including before this episode, about kind of the bullshit (laughs) (laughs) terror mess that is mainstream mental health. 
And I'm thinking about how, you know, like so many of us go to a therapist or a counselor because we genuinely want more pleasure in our lives. We want to feel more open and more alive. And yet the state of modern mental health for the most part is really about pathologizing, about um, finding solutions and fixing things. Mm -hmm. But it's all about bringing you into alignment with the systems that are broken and causing the violence. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about, especially as someone who is (laughs) doing work in mental health right now, you know, what should we be looking for when we're thinking about working with a mental health professional and really prioritizing and centering our pleasure? And how do you see the relationship between like therapy and pleasure playing out in the ways that therapists are trained and in the systems that they are kind of being indoctrinated into? Mm, yeah. Well, I'm currently slogging my way through a master's in counseling psychology with the goal of eventually being a therapist who can be part of the change. But I have to say it's really, um, it's bad out there. You know, it's really bad out there in terms of the normativity of the models that are taught and, um, you know, how little, I mean, it's possible to become a therapist with very little training on sexuality at all. So I think that's important to name for people is um, that if you're wanting to do work around sexuality, eros, pleasure, um, relationship structure, I really recommend looking for more specialized practitioners who have a stated niche, you know, and, and like a a real body of experience in working with these areas and to not just assume that any therapist can hold you in that, you know? Yeah. Um, So I think there's an element of client discernment and really looking uh, for people who, who advertise and do work in those areas. Therapy in its conventional ways is, is as I think you said before, it's adjacent to the medical industrial complex. It is very much about treating symptoms. Yeah. Um, and too often its goal is to make us functional in a very dysfunctional, uh, according to a dysfunctional set of expectations, in my opinion, because it's working off models that are inherently anti-erotic. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's so important to name, right? That like the, the ways that we currently, you know, we in quotes being kind of like the culture of medicine and mental health, the ways that we look at mind and body are very pathologizing. They're Mm -hmm. very much about centering the white male, cis, able-bodied, wealthy experience and trying to bring everybody else to that place. And that can be inherently violent for so many people. And of Mm -hmm. course, deeply anti-erotic, you know, Mm -hmm. like to to indoctrinate people into patriarchy, to try and force people to have an experience of libido and desire that matches what they think it should look like, according to a whole bunch of studies done on like young cis men. Mm -hmm. And like, that is not a place where wildness, the unknown, uncertainty, magic, power Mm -hmm. can play out because Mm -hmm. there's so many 
like mysterious variables in that. Mm -hmm. And that is not how these systems are set up to accommodate. Mm -hmm. You know, they are, they are all about forcing everyone into a code or a box and then treating from there versus allowing the wonder and the marvel to happen, meaning that might look really different than everything you've been given. And so I really appreciate how you're saying like client discernment is important and really being skeptical and going in with knowing what it is that you want and being able to ask really hard questions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's really important to say also that, um, you know, and I feel like I'm kind of slagging off therapists and this, which is, you know, not really my goal, but also I'm going, I'm in grad school and I'm bitter. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, deal with it. Um, It's just that I think that therapists really need to do their own experiential sexuality work to be able to really help and assist clients in these waters. And that the education that you get to become a therapist does not set you up to do that at all. Yeah. So um, I really think that, you know, when it comes to working with people around sexual shame and just the amazing, vast, complex, you know, multifactorial realm of sexuality, it is not something that you can learn from a book. Yeah. It really is not. And even well-intentioned practitioners who still try strive to say the right thing may not be able to embody the kind of sexual acceptance, you know, that real felt sense in the room of like anything that you are going through is okay and yeah. anything that you tell me is okay. And really that's the corrective healing experience that we need around our sexuality in this world where we're faced with so much isolation and we're made to feel like we don't belong. I mean, we just need to feel seen, accepted, witnessed, affirmed. It's not about getting to a place of a success. It's about being okay where we are yeah. and just getting to feel whole. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think like one of the things that's so challenging about this is because of capitalism, because of neoliberalist ideals, because Almost all modern mental health was theorized by white, cis, upper-class men. You know, these systems inherently position us into a hierarchy where some people have knowledge and some people have power and everyone else is supposed to be going to those people for the answers. And when we're talking about our sexuality, you know, when we're talking about the ways we experience our body, Literally no one else in the entire universe knows what it is to be in this body, to feel Mm -hmm. these sensations, to have been through the things you've been through and to know the marks they left on your soul. And I think that that's so important for us to remember, right? That we are coming into all of these situations with professionals being the experts who hold the wisdom. Yeah. This piece around, um, the client's inner authority is so key, I think. And I really would also include that as an aspect of client discernment and finding mental health professionals to work with is um, how just to really, to trust your own lived experience of how the practitioner holds that power dynamic. Yeah. And if they really set themselves up to be the expert with answers or do they set themselves up to be 
more like a wisdom partner in exploration in a journey that's ultimately yours. Oh, that to me sounds awesome. (laughs) Right? Like I want to be in relationship with people in that way Mm -hmm. who want to help hold that lantern when Mm -hmm. I'm in the darkness, but trust that I'm finding my way with the tools that I have and, and who celebrate like not just getting me to baseline, but that want me to know pleasure and satisfaction and joy and play and for it to come from every part of my being as often as is possible in the ways that I move through the world. I mean, like those are the kinds of professionals that I want for all of us, not people who are just like, well, let's get you to quote unquote normal. And then I've done my job. Good me. Oh my God. Totally. Yes. Oh, I love how you're saying that. I'm feeling you're inspiring me. (laughs) 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 Oh oh my God. Well, I can keep talking to you for literally forever, but in the interest of time and everyone who is listening, can you tell everybody a little bit about um, what you've got coming up next, how they can stay in touch with you, follow along online? Yes, totally. So um, all my work is housed at rewildingtheheart.com. Currently, you know, I'm in a, I'm opening up my private practice to taking new clients, which I do remotely over phone or Skype. So I work with people all over the place around all the things we've talked about in this call. Um, I will be offering some resources around rewilding your sexuality and more about this work um, in the coming month. So my mailing list is a great place to be. Um, I'm also part of the, part of my advocacy is that I'm on the task force on consensual non-monogamy for the American uh, Psychology Association. So we are producing research um, and advocacy around getting more psychologists to be literate in polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. Um, so we're working on a study right now, examining intersecting identities within that, which I'm very excited about. That's going to look at how people's, um, intersecting identities across multiple axes influence their lived experience of polyamory and non-monogamy. So it's going to be, it's cool. I mean, it's going to be pretty new research into that world. Of course, we have to, you know, research and publish it to have our lived experiences legitimized, but just saying, <laughs> um, that'll be coming out in the next couple of months. So just getting on my mailing list is a great uh, way to hear about it. Woo-hoo! Well, I will have links to your website, uh, in the show notes for this episode. So people can go there, join your mailing list, check out all the rad things you're doing. Thank you so much for being here and sharing a little bit of time and all of these really deep, amazing thoughts with us. Oh my God. Such, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I just have so much love and appreciation for you and the way you hold your work and hold people and run this podcast. Um, you are such a beam of light in the energy that you bring into the world. And it's, um, it's a pleasure to be on the planet at the same time as you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so mutual and we will take our love fest offline now. So everybody who tuned in, thank you so much for being here with us. And of course I will be back next week. Talk to you soon. Bye. You used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue treading water in the dark Come
A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sexgetsreal to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed, love.